The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time now to open the scriptures together, all of us, the people of God, as we open up to Psalm 132. I hope you will find a copy of God's Word and open with us to Psalm 132. A Bible that you have there at home, one you can get online, whatever you need to do to access the scriptures, open with us to Psalm 132. We have been in the Psalms of Ascents all of these weeks of quarantine, and we are reaching the end of that time period of quarantine, thankfully, but we're also reaching the end of these Psalms of Ascents because they run through Psalm 134. But we are going to continue through until 134, but for now we're in Psalm 132, and you'll notice if you've already found your way there in the scriptures that Psalm 132 is the longest of all of the Psalms of Ascent, sometimes two and even three times longer than others. And uh, as I think about that for just a moment, uh, I don't want to comment on the length of time that it has taken to construct the 74 bridge, although many people are complaining about that. Uh, I don't have any expertise in civil or social engineering, structural engineering whatsoever, but I will comment on the design of the bridge, if that's okay, even though I realize that that's controversial. You'll notice that all the attention right now is on the arches, right, that are connecting the span of the bridge. They've been receiving the most attention because they are the essential structure of the bridge. Of course, there's going to be other parts of the bridge, right? There are going to be cables and guardrails and the road itself that's going to carry us across. But the archways provide that essential union between either side of the river and the piers along the way. The archways are the essential point of connection. And the reason why I bring that up and the reason why I call that to your attention and to picture that in your mind is because that's actually a helpful way to understand how the Bible works as well. There are many parts of the Bible, right? Stories, chapters, and individual books, and a New and Old Testament. But across all of the Bible, there is an essential archway that connects the entire story together to get us from one side to the other. And those essential archways are key points for understanding how God's story is told and how you and I fit into God's story. So this psalm, Psalm 132, is an example of one of the most important archways over the Bible to help us understand the story of God because Psalm 132 is a psalm about God's promises. And the word that we use there, as I said to the children, is God's covenant. Psalm 132 is a psalm of God's covenant of grace. God's covenant is the arch across the whole Bible, the promises He makes and the promises He keeps to bring about our salvation in Christ. So, Psalm 132 is an archway for us. But also by way of introduction, uh, remember that these psalms of ascents were used as the collection of songs sung by Israelite pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, ascending Mount Zion to go and worship at the temple. They were ascending the higher elevation to go to Jerusalem and worship. And on the way, they would sing these songs. And these songs would call to mind and memory and the affection of heart, the mercies of God's covenant grace, His unfailing love and faithfulness which He has to His children. 
And as they would go, they would there worship at the temple, that central place of Israel's worship, where they would remember that they are the people of God, and God Himself is their God who has made and kept covenant promises to them. So, Psalm 132 is about that as well, but it's about one particular covenant, one particular covenant that we call the Davidic covenant, and we'll think much about David this morning, and we'll call to mind some other scenes from biblical history, Uh, but the background of Psalm 132 is about the promises that David makes to God, but more importantly, the promises that God makes to David, and ultimately to you and I together to bring about our salvation in Christ. So there's a lot that we can learn from this psalm this morning. It's rich in history, but we'll try to stick right on the main points. And so first, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His Word as we give time and attention to it now. Let's pray. O Lord God, we open the Scriptures together, exalting Your name for Your love and Your faithfulness. We praise You that You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who delivered our spiritual fathers from enslavement through the wilderness and gathered them together in the promised land of Zion. And now, Lord, we, your church, that true Israel, that true Zion, gather together now to remember your faithfulness of old as we consider your faithfulness to us today. And indeed, Lord, look with faith to trust you and your faithfulness into the future. Lord, set your Son, the Lord Jesus, before our eyes this morning in the Scriptures, that we may exalt Him and proclaim the greatness and the glory of Zion's King. And so, Lord, illuminate our minds, illuminate our hearts, help us to receive all that you've given to us here in the Scriptures. Bless your word to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Psalm 132. The Lord has chosen Zion, a song of ascents. This is the word of God. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There... I will make a horn to sprout for David. 
I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. And so may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts today. So I hope you'll keep your Bible open there in Psalm 132 as we consider the scriptures together. And as we look at them, I want you to to just see that this psalm is in two parts, just two parts. The first half is in the first 10 verses, and the second half is verses 11 through 18. And in the first half, David is making a promise to God, and in the second half, God is making a promise to David. Very simple outline. But verses 1 through 10 focus on what David has promised to do for the Lord. So let's see that, first of all, in the first 11 verses. Uh, This is something of a commentary of a very, very important time in David's life, the king of Israel, but also the life of Israel as the people of God in general. And if you want the background for this story, uh, you've got to look at the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, I encourage you to read that perhaps later on today, is the place you need to read from for the background of the details of what's going on here. Because this is all about how David, in verse 2, swore, made a promise to the Lord. Look at it again in verse 2. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. He's making a promise to God that's so important to him. He essentially says in verses 3 through 4, I am not going to rest until I see this promise accomplished. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that David literally did not go to sleep ever, but it means that this was so important to him that it was the most essential duty of his life he saw. What was it that was David's great passion? You see it in verse 5, that he wants to provide a place for the Lord to dwell A dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenants. And again, you can go back to 2 Samuel 7, but essentially what's happened in David's life up till this point is that through many dangers, toils, and snares, he is the young shepherd boy that has become king over Israel. And he looks around at his grand house that he lives in, his palace made of expensive wood and expensive beautiful materials and other fine things. And he asks this question, why should I live in such a fine house? Why should I live in such a palace when the Lord God doesn't have a house to live in? And so he commits this, I will build a house for the Lord. You see that again, what he says I will not get, verse 4, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place. And what he means by that is not that, that God needs a place with an address and all the rest, a physical dwelling place. What he means by that is that he wants to build something where the Ark of the Covenant can reside. The Ark of the Covenant. Now that strikes some familiar tunes to us. But, but don't count on Indiana Jones to teach you about the Ark of the Covenant. He will lead you astray. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box about a yard long and 18 inches high, covered with gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the two 
tablets of stone where the law of God was written and handed to Moses. Those stone tablets were inside the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant had a lid that covered it that was called the mercy seat, and it was made of gold, and it was where the high priest would go into the temple on the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the sacrificial blood there on what was called the mercy seat to symbolize the forgiveness of sins for the people of God. The ark was originally made in the wilderness during the years of Israel's wandering, but was kept in the tabernacle, which was essentially a tent, a tent that Israel could pick up, pack up, and go as they traveled around the wilderness. And the tabernacle itself, uh, if you think relative to size, would have fit probably in our sanctuary. But within the tabernacle would be uh, an inner place where the Ark of the Covenant would reside. And during the reign of Saul, Israel's first king, the ark was really disregarded. It was even handed back and forth a couple of times to Israel's enemies as they would capture it from Israel. But Saul was a king who was not mindful of the Lord God's kingship, and it was essentially disregarded. It was put in storage, essentially, and forgotten. But under the reign of David, the ark of the covenant is brought triumphantly to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And that's significant because the Ark of the Covenant represented the footstool of God on earth. You even see that language here in Psalm 132. The Ark represented the footstool of God's throne, where, as it were, God rests His feet as He sits on His throne in heaven, His feet rest on the Ark of the Covenant here on earth. And so to have the Ark of the Covenant in the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, where God would symbolically dwell alongside the throne of David, Israel's king, is such a way of saying God reigns powerfully over Israel and indeed over all things. It's saying this is where God is. This is where God dwells. That's why the Ark of the Covenant is so important. And Psalm 132 is remembering the story of how David said, I will build you a house, Lord, to contain your Ark of the Covenant. Look at again how he says in verses 6 through 8. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Do you see that? It. Twice in verse 6. The it is the Ark. And you know that because of what 7 and 8 says. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Remember that language? Verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So the ark of verse 8 is the it twice in verse 6. This is all about how the ark of God came to Jerusalem. And David's passion was to see the Lord God worshipped and honored and exalted with a place of worship in Jerusalem. And so he commits himself to build for the Lord the temple. Now, what I think we should note most of all, there's a number of things that we should say about this, but just maybe consider David's example to us here, that David is a man filled with love for the Lord and zeal for the Lord's house. He is committed to the Lord and to the worship of the Lord in the Lord's house. He committed himself to the Lord's cause, and that's a reminder for you and I as the people of God to likewise commit ourselves, not to build tabernacles and temples around the place, but rather to commit ourselves to the Lord's house where he's worshipped. If you are a Christian believer, it makes sense then 
that you are also a person committed with zeal to the house of the Lord, where, in God's timing, we're able to gather to worship together. Dear friend, do you have zeal for the Lord's house? Has this season of quarantine stirred up in you an increased affection to worship the Lord together with the people of God? I hope it has. And I hope it won't go away when we're able to return to worship again. I hope that is a sensation in your soul that will not quickly be dismissed. To have zeal for the Lord's house. To say with the psalmist in verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. I can't wait for that. And David had a passion for that very thing as well. So that's the, the first half is David's promise to God, but I want us to see in the second half of this psalm that David's promise to God was actually met by the Lord with a greater promise to David. You see that in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. So there's a lot of promise making in Psalm 132. David's promise to God but more importantly, God's promise to David now. And the summary of what happens in 2 Samuel 7 and what's being recounted here in Psalm 132 is again, David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says back to David, I don't need a house. I instead will build you a house, David. And what's happening there in 2 Samuel 7 when David says, I will build you a house, and God says, no, David, I will build you a house, is there's actually a play on this Hebrew word for house, because house can mean a literal physical dwelling place, which is what David intended. I want to build you a structure, a house. But God says to David, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And house there means not physical dwelling place, but rather dynasty and posterity. It means lineage. God promises to David a house and a lineage of kingship. Look at it again in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, literally your own flesh, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. God is here promising to David in 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 132 remembers this promise, that God is saying, you will always have a Davidic king to reign over Israel. You will always have a king for the people of God from the lineage of David. Literally from David's own flesh. And hope you're interested to know that that was true for 400 years. There was a literal bloodline inheritance from David. A lineage of David's own flesh to reign over Israel. And also interestingly, even though David is the one, was the one who was so passionate to build the Lord's house, he's the one who did not build it. He made the plans and provisions and gathered the resources for it. But actually it was his son. Solomon, who built the temple. And when Solomon, the son of David, the literal blood of David, when the temple that Solomon's father David had committed to build, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed this prayer from 2 Chronicles. Listen closely to it. 
And now, arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. That's from 2 Chronicles 6, and you'll recognize it because it's also verses 8 through 10 in Psalm 132. This is a key point in the life of the people of God where Solomon is celebrating the fact that here, Lord, you will reign. You will reign as ultimate king over your people. Now, in a bigger picture, there's a lot that's also happening here in Psalm 132 because the psalm celebrates the fact that God had appointed a king to reign over the kingdom of Zion, and the people of God are supposed to know themselves as citizens of Zion who will always have a Davidic king to reign over them. And this is this glorious picture here. And the pilgrims would sing this song on their way to Jerusalem to go and worship. They're thinking and remembering how David wanted to build the temple, and David brought the ark here to Jerusalem, and David's son Solomon built this temple, and they saw the enthronement ceremony and all of those promises that God made and God kept. They rehearsed them as they sing this song and go and worship at the temple. But there's also a twist here in Psalm 132. The twist is, is that Psalm 132 is found in the fifth book of the Psalter. The, all 150 Psalms are divided into five books. And the fifth book of the Psalter is dated not just to the time of Solomon. It was also put in the Psalter during the time of the exile. When the people of God, the people of Zion were scattered away from their homeland and away from their temple, cast into exile. And so this language about David's descendants being on the throne and reigning forever was being sung by pilgrims who were away from their homeland and away from the temple and who did not presently have a king to reign over them. But they still sang the song. And they had to sing it in faith, believing that God will do what He promised He will do. Because, do you remember back from verse 12, how long did God promise this kingship to last? It says forever. And so if God says that this promise is forever, and we don't presently see it as a reality, that must mean it must be coming. That must mean it must still be coming. These pilgrims had to walk by faith, believing in and trusting God's covenant and His promise to do what He said He would do. And, also importantly, you and I need to learn that lesson as well, don't we? You and I need to learn to sing this song because we have even more of the story than these pilgrims did. They were looking back on the days of the Davidic kingdom and Solomon and the dedication of the temple and the bringing in of the Ark of the Covenant, but we are able to look back on even more history than they could in the Old Testament because Psalm 132 looks forward to a greater king. And we, as the people of God and citizens of Zion, are able to look back and see how Psalm 132 was pointing forward to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was from the lips of Zechariah, the priest, who spoke by the Holy Spirit just before the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1, quoting Psalm 132, verse 16. 
Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David to remember His holy covenant. You see that language from verse 16 and verse 17. A horn to sprout for David. That's a symbol of strength and power of a reign that is going to be established and never, ever go away. If the Ark of the Covenant represented the place where God dwelt symbolically on earth, how much more significant is it that God Himself came to dwell literally in our flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the true Son of David, who is David's own flesh, born of Mary. This Christ of ours is the one that the Father has said to His Son, I will give you a people and a kingdom, but it will come by way of your righteous obedience and your suffering and your death. But by your sacrifice... I will raise you up and exalt you in power and give to you this glorious kingdom, my son, over which you will reign. And I will gather together a people that will be for your name, a kingdom which shall never fail away. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Psalm 132 is pointing towards. Don't you see? Psalm 132, verses 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has destined it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And also, verse 18. Speaking of the great son of David. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. That calls to mind that glorious picture of Revelation 11, where the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. There is a king to reign over all things, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you and I, as the people of God, are called to sing this song, believing that we have a king in Zion, and we are the people of the king of Zion. And we must sing this song, and we must sing this song in many different ways. It applies to us in several different ways. I want you to think of them here for just a moment. We should sing this song in a corporate sense, together as the people of God. That the kingdom that we belong to is not yet fully realized. It has begun. It, be, it began by way of Christ's victorious resurrection, but the final consummation of the kingdom is not here yet. Meaning, we live in the in-between time. The already existing kingdom and the not yet reality of the kingdom in its fullness. That means, friends, that things are not as they should be. And you should not expect them to be full of perfection. It makes sense, doesn't it, that there's injustice and unrighteousness in the world. We see it everywhere. 
We have illustrations of it all around us, all the time. And dear friends, if you find yourself disappointed in the kingdoms of this world, keep in mind that for one reason or another, that all the kingdoms of this world are run by merely fallen humans who even in their best intentions are not able to enact perfect justice and fulfill perfect righteousness. There is only one kingdom where that is true, and it is the kingdom of God. The kingdom that has arrived is breaking into the world to transform and make things new, but a kingdom that is still waiting for its fullness. And in that corporate sense, you and I together live in that kingdom by faith. Even when things aren't as they should be, we believe God's promises and press on in faith and trusting in Him in a corporate sense. But what about in an individual sense, your individual life? When you long for God to fulfill His promises to you, when you long for God to answer your prayers, when you've given your heart to Him and you've trusted Him, but you're not seeing the things that you so long for materialize, you don't see your prayers answered, you don't see those, those righteous desires given, what do you have to do? But you have to do what the pilgrims of Psalm 132 had to do as well. You have to continue to walk by faith. You have to continue to go and worship the Lord at His footstool, believing that He will fulfill His promises to you. Isn't that one of the beautiful realities of the people of God gathered together? That for as corporate and, and many as we are, we are also individuals whom God knows and cares for and watches over. And you and I have to continue to live and walk by faith because God will surely keep His promises in His timing. This psalm points us to this great truth that we have been delivered, that we have a King who has redeemed us from our sins and over death itself, that He lives and reigns and gives to us our hope. And one, one final thought about that. Uh, speaking very pastorally, if you don't mind, here for a moment. There's a very poignant and personal moment that happens during a funeral service when the casket is uh, processed forward to the front of the church and either Nancy or Pam is beautifully playing the Lord's Prayer and there's a crescendo in that hymn, isn't there? And it happens at the end. It's on the last line. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, for how long? Forever. And we are reminded in that moment, as you and I are reminded every single Lord's Day, that Jesus Christ reigns, even over death itself. And because He reigns, our hopes have not fallen false. They're not empty, but they're true. Dear friends, Jesus reigns. He reigns in whatever it is that you face in your life right now. Some of you are facing trials and sufferings and pains and, and sorrows that, it, that we don't know about, and yet the Lord God knows. And He reigns in your trials as well. He reigns in your marriage. He reigns in your family. As you sit and watch this on a screen, He reigns in your home. And the Bible wants us to be so conscious of this reality, more conscious than we have been in the past, that we are the children of God, the citizens of Zion, and we have citizenship in this eternal kingdom over which Jesus Christ reigns. For thine is the kingdom. 
and the power and the glory. Let us worship Him as He so rightly deserves, as He is crowned with honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let us sing together Psalm 132, according to the hymn, The Church's One Foundation to that same tune. Let's sing together Psalm 132. says, we pray that you would arise, O Lord. The people of God prayed that in the days when the tabernacle would move, they would cry out, arise, O Lord. And so we cry out as well, arise, O Lord, and continue to go before us to show us the way. 
undergird our faith with strength, that we might believe with confidence that you will surely fulfill all of your promises to us. And as you have secured our hopes by way of the resurrection, remind us, Lord, that we too are resurrected in Christ. And one day we shall experience a physical resurrection as well and a new body where we will dwell with you in your presence in consummation of all of your promises to live together with your people and with your Son. And so, Lord God, because we live in this fallen world that is yet being redeemed and transformed, we pray that you would help us to live by faith, that you would give us the perseverance we need to press on believing that you reign over all things, including our very lives and circumstances. And so, Lord God, receive our earnest praise from your children, your citizens of Zion, who claim their hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Bless us now. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.